Okay, welcome to the BGS Broadcasting Company, podcasting from U8 on a very cold Thursday morning. I'm Mr Briggs and I'm here with Maddie, one of our sixth form scholars. Say hi, Maddie. Hi. And uh, we are talking about Othello. We are going to do a passage-based question. Uh, you've got your handout, so you can go and find your handout now. Done that? Good. Excellent. So you'll see that the extract we're looking at is from Act 3, Scene 3, which is the very middle of the play. Um, so if we're thinking about words like peripatia or a reversal of fortunes that the tragic protagonist undergoes, um, then we would expect some, some sort of reversal or change or turn to happen around about the middle of the play. Things have been going really well for Othello up till now. Um, generally speaking, he's married Desdemona, he's got a commission to Cyprus, he's managed to defeat the Turkish fleet without really having even to unsheath his sword. A storm has done all of that for him. So things have been going pretty well. There's been a minor irritation with Cassio, his newly appointed lieutenant, having got drunk, apparently, as far as he knows, and uh, caused a fight. Um, but other than that, things are going okay. So this is where Iago starts to make his plan. Uh, work and start to create that reversal of fortunes. So, Maddie, did you want to just um, read the question that um, we've got yeah. attached to this extract? So, how does Shakespeare make this a significant moment in the play? Great. And what did we think? Do you want to read the thesis that we came yeah. up with? Um, immediately prior to this extract, Othello has revoked Cassius' commission and then seen him taking hurried leave of Desdemona on seeing Othello's approach. While the audience know Cassio was merely petitioning Desdemona to help him back into Othello's good graces, there are also, they are also conscious that Iago is making use of this opportunity to poison Othello against both his wife and his former lieutenant. This extract from Act 3, Scene 3, the very middle of the play, marks the turning point towards the tragedy in Othello's fortunes, as his need for certainty leads him to fall increasingly under the manipulative power of misleading signs and signals from his malicious ensign. Great, well read. Good stuff. So we're setting out then what our key ideas are in our thesis statement there. Um, it's a relatively short paragraph because we want to get into the, um, the nitty gritty of the analysis. So what was our first thought? What was our first point? Um, our first point was the ways in which Iago uses the power of suggestion and performative reluctance to reveal his thoughts in order to pick Othello's Peak Othello's curiosity. Great. So how does he do that? What did we notice? Um, I think, sort of, from the beginning, he introduces... He's the one who introduces the idea of jealousy. He's the first one who sort of mentions the word jealousy, mm -hmm. which kind of subconsciously instills it in Othello's mind. Absolutely, yeah. What did you think of the way um, he describes jealousy there, or sort of zoomorphizes it? Yeah, he says... Um, he says it's... Uh, it mocks the meat it feeds on, which is kind of, it's quite predatory. And mm -hmm. I would say it kind of shows how it begins to prey on Othello's mind. And absolutely, yes. Yeah. So another meaning of the word preying on it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And how also does he, he does this performative thing of, of, you know, he's got this thing in his mind, but he's pretending that he doesn't want to reveal it. When actually, of course, the, that's the thing he most wants to do. He's just looking forward to that moment when he can actually tell Othello this idea that he's got in his head. But he pretends not to want to tell him. And I wonder what we noticed about the way, the way he does that, the way he kind of withholds information and uses that to, to sort of force Othello to, um, to demand him to speak. 
Yeah, I think there's, it's a lot of kind of, I do beseech you and sort of, um, and stuff like that, which kind of shows he's kind of holding back the information to kind of bring a fellow in and try and... Yeah, absolutely. And though I perchance am vicious in my guess. Yeah. Yeah, that thing too. Also this, um, early on in the beginning of this scene, he talks about, um, I'm not bound to that all slaves are free to. Utter my thoughts? Why? Say they are vile and false. Um, so he's kind of reminding Othello of the nature of their relationship. He's bound to acts of duty. He's, you know, Othello's his employer, if you like. Um, but there is a limit to what Othello can demand of him. He's not enslaved by Othello. So he's, he's saying, I'm, you know, I'm still a free agent. I can still um, retain my thoughts. Um, but Othello is the one who brings in the idea of friendship rather than sort of professionalism, doesn't he? Mm. He says, you're conspiring against your friend if you think something that you, that you know is to his interest, but you don't tell him. Yeah. So he kind of crosses over that line from professionalism to, to friendship, which kind of slightly changes the nature of the, the debate. Um, I wondered if you noticed any other things about how he, um, you know, how he, he kind of keeps Othello on this string, really, keeping him really sort of curious. Um... Well, it's kind of slightly less about that, but it's it talks about his honesty and stuff, which is kind of, I think it's mentioned over 50 times that Iago's honest in the play. Is it over 50? I think it's... I, right, I didn't realise that. I know it's it a lot. Over 50, so. That's great. Yeah, no, I didn't realise it was that many. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's just, that's kind of, as well as he's kind of enticing Othello, he's also kind of re the idea that he's like a trustworthy friend that like Othello can like, go-to with his problems. Absolutely, yeah. I noticed as well, he uses a lot of um, hendiadis. Now, I'll just explain that word. Um, but Iago normally sort of tries to give two words rather than just one whenever he's trying to say something, or sometimes three. So it's a sort of rhetorical trick of trying to emphasise the point he's making. So there's this moment where... Um, he's telling Othello not to build a trouble for himself out of a scattering and an unsure observance. I think scattering and unsure are both meant to mean something quite similar there. They mean what I think has happened is not an entirely reliable account because yeah. I don't have any evidence yet. So it's just sort of in my head. It's just a kind of specious, spurious notion at the moment. But he tends to always kind of say things twice. So it's a scattering and an unsure observance. It were not for your quiet, nor for your good. Not for my manhood, my honesty or wisdom. I don't know if you notice that sort of pattern of yeah. um, doubling things and um, tripling things sometimes as well. That's a kind of rhetorical trick to just sort of emphasise the point he's making. That he's got this horrible thing in his mind, but he doesn't want to have to reveal it. Well, there are other things then on the way that um, Iago keeps him on a string. I suppose there's another example of that. Did you notice where he says towards the end of that speech, oh, beware, my lord of jealousy, the one you mentioned, yeah. where he personifies jealousy as a monster. He talks about the cuckold who is certain that he is a cuckold lives in bliss. What does he mean by that, did you think? What's he talking about there? Mm. Why is it better if you know? 
I guess because then you're you're not kind of haunted by the uncertainty of not knowing. Uh huh. Why do you think uncertainty is so? Why is why is that worse? I mean, if something bad has happened, is it better to know for sure that it has happened rather than just suspect it? I think because if there's if there's uncertainty, it's very easy to fill in the gaps yourself, which is what you see kind of Othello doing. He's kind of making something that's that's not happened. Okay, and that's more like a kind of form of self-torture. Yeah. Yeah. But if you know, I suppose you can do something about it. The cuckold who loves not his wronger, who hates the man who's cuckold him, can react. Yeah. I suppose it matters that Othello is a soldier. He's a man of action. Yeah. Do you think that matters? Rather than, he's not an academic. Would he have been better if he was an academic rather than a soldier? Why, what, what about him being a man of action? I think, I think probably because, because he's a man of action, it's his nature to want to fix things or actively kind of change something rather than kind of being content, sort of just thinking about it. I think that's right, yeah. Keats has a, a phrase called negative capability which means, I mean, he defines it in a number of different ways in his letters, but it's, it, one of the definitions is about being able to be in uncertainties without any irritable reaching after fact. I think that's the quotation. And he says it's like a quality of genius, like people who can sit in a place of uncertainty without like, needing to resolve the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And can just inhabit um, ambiguity. That's that's a sort of a quality of genius. Othello just doesn't have any of that, does no, it? It's no. like he has to know what what's happened, and then he can do a thing to try and maybe change it, and then maybe. Is that quite a masculine thing in the play? Or all the male characters, do you think? Are they all like very much lacking in negative capability? I think possibly, but then also kind of just at the time, it's easier for men to kind of react to things, but harder for the women too so it may just be the the setting of the time yeah that's interesting so they think of themselves as sort of agents of power who can affect change and mm. so they, they, they just feel that expectation so, to yeah do it. yeah yeah and then yaga kind of goes on to say but but he who doesn't know who's unsure is in a kind of um purgatory oh what damned minutes tells he over who dopes yet doubts, suspects yet strongly loves. So we've got more of those pairings. Yeah, I think that's again the kind of the same thing about the self-torture where you're kind of sitting in a place of where your mind's just torturing you essentially. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's kind of really emphasized as well, isn't it, by that um, alliteration there on dopes and doubts and suspects and strongly loves. Yeah. Sort of really pairing those those couplets together. Because they're opposites, aren't they? To dote is to love Desdemona and yet also doubts in her. Suspects, yet strongly loves. So he's emphasizing that point of being in in a, a place of irresolution, a lack of certainty. And notice how inarticulate Othello has become. All he can say is. Oh, misery. Yeah. I mean, Yage talks so much more, doesn't he, through this yeah, um, completely. speech. But if we move on to our second point, he does give Othello, Shakespeare that is, does give Othello um, a speech in response to that. 
I wondered if we could look at that one towards the, the end of the extract, that longer speech from Othello. Um, what, did you, what did you notice there, Maddie, about the way he talks about his wife and about these ideas and about himself as well? I think he says, "'Tis not to make me jealous," and then sort of lists all the kind of the things about his wife's life, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I think what, what I noticed is that if you just go a little bit further down, it says, "'For she had eyes and chose me.'" And it goes from this kind of listing of very kind of present tense, like dances well, mm-hmm. sings, plays, and then it goes to kind of had eyes and chose me, which I, I kind of read that might show he has a kind of doubt that she would still choose him, possibly. That's really interesting. Um, I hadn't spotted that. that. Yeah, there is a shift of tense of there, the isn't past. there? Yeah, between what she is and what, and what had happened in the past. Yeah. And what had happened in the past, he's kind of sure about. Yeah. She had eyes. She chose me. No, Yago, I'll see before I doubt. But then you're right. Before that was all those present tense verbs, which is what she's like now. Yeah. And superficially, he's trying to reassure himself. Just because she's beautiful and sings and plays well doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem. Mm. Um, yeah, no, that's really good. Also, I mean, this, that thing you you pointed out about, um, think I'd make a life of jealousy. He's, you know, strongly denying that. Yeah. Um, that's sort of, he sees that as beneath him. Um, but he confirms that idea, doesn't he, of, of action. No, to be once in doubt is once to be resolved. Yeah. Yeah, again, that thing about once I know what the situation is, I'll, I'll deal with it. But, yeah. you know, at the moment, there's not a problem. He's very much sort of, it's like stop or go, isn't it, with Othello? There's no kind yeah. of in-between. Yeah, I think also just the the repetition of I doubt when I doubt, the kind of, you can clearly see that doubt is something that's playing strongly on his mind. Even if he's denying it, he's, it's definitely something that's kind yeah, of absolutely. He uses the word twice at least in that speech, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. There's a few other things there. You mentioned I'll see before I doubt or she had eyes and chose me. Did you notice other references to, to what we might call ocular imagery, stuff to do with eyes and seeing? Because I think that's a theme in the play, isn't it? Um, Iago's sort yeah. of skillful direction of everything that happens, um, you know, is, he's able to create impressions. He's able to shape the way that people view what they're seeing um, and to, to, to affect their, the way they interpret what they're seeing. Yeah, I think certainly Iago's last, um, kind of speech in this extract has like look, observe, where your eye, look to it, see, yeah, kind of yeah. loads of um, like ocular imagery, which I think sort of in some ways means that he can kind of distance himself from it because it's Othello who's kind of like seeing for his for himself what's like going on with Desdemona, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. Yes, it's a way of just taking that um, burden off himself. So it's not just what he's said, but it's more about what Othello's seen. Yeah, and it links in with the idea that um, of proof. There's a lot of kind of speak of mm-hmm. when I doubt, prove, and on the proof, um, etc. So I think he's saying, like, I don't have proof, but you can see proof for yourself. Yeah, I mean, later on, I think in the play when... Um, Iago stage manages that scene where Othello listens to Cassio and Iago talking. They're actually talking about Amelia, but 
Iago's uh, made it seem as though for Othello they're talking about Desdemona and then he comes back afterwards and he said did you see the handkerchief did you see the handkerchief in his hand and he's like yes I saw it how shall I I think he just responds I don't think he even says yes I think he just says how shall I murder him Iago so yes that idea that what you see somehow is completely reliable as evidence um, that whole idea is being undermined which is interesting there's also some animal imagery. Exchange me for a goat when I shall turn the business of my soul to such ex-sufflicate and blown surmises. I think that's the only usage of the word ex-sufflicate anywhere in the English language, according to the Oxford mm, English I, Dictionary. I googled it and it was like in Shakespeare's Othello. And I was like, oh. It's the only place it exists, yeah. yeah. Extravagant, I think it means. Yeah, yeah. I got sort of exaggerate or yeah. blown out of proportion. Notice how he's picked up Yago's um, habit of hendiasis, using those two adjectives to describe the word surmises. Ex-sufflicate and blown. I mean, they both kind of mean the same thing, but they're kind of sl- slightly different yeah. meanings as well. Which kind of shows... Yeah, there's subtle kind of indoctrination of Othello's Yeah, it's mind. coming through linguistically on the, yeah. that effect on Othello. Also, I'm, just, I'm interested in this idea of exchange me for a goat. When I start, you know, doubting and having these concerns about my wife that you're implying, then you might as well exchange me for a goat. Have you heard of a scapegoat? Yes. What's a scapegoat? Someone you place the blame on to remove it from yourself, I guess. Yeah. A kind of sacrificial element yeah. to a scapegoat, isn't it? I think it comes from Dionysian rituals and um, the use of animal sacrifice to purge a community of something, of some kind of sense of sin or wrongdoing. You load all the, kind of metaphorically, you load all the sin of the village onto the back mm. of a goat and then, you, and then you punish the goat. Yeah. And then by killing it, and then somehow you've purged things of, um, purged the village of the, um, the wickedness. Nietzsche claims that the word tragedy comes from the words tragos and oda, which literally means goat and song. It's a goat oh. song. No way. The song of a goat. Um, the music of tragedy is like a, a goat braying. Um, but that there's a kind of sacrificial dimension to tragedy, like the death of the tragic hero. It involves a kind of purging of some kind. Yeah. And there's so much animal imagery in the play. I mean, goats and monkeys later on. Um, all that stuff Iago says to Rodrigo at the beginning um, when he's talking to Brabantio. And it just struck me, that line, you know, there's a, there's a tendency for Othello sometimes to say things a little hubristically, which the audience, you know, they then come true. It's almost like he's tempting fate. Yeah. You know, when I start thinking like that, exchange me for a goat, like a scapegoat like a sacrificial victim to some, you know, I don't know. This is yeah. not a, you know, and, and it's, it's, so I think as an audience, we, we you know, we have, a, we have an awareness there of Othello's tendency towards these grand statements that are in touch hubristic. Um, and that's another example. So I suppose that links into our second point in that we're saying he sounds confident in, in Desdemona's virtue and yet he's kind of, protesting yeah. a little bit too much he's like making too strong a claim for it and that maybe that points to the fact that that confidence is merely superficial mm. i think i also just on the i think the third to last line of iago's speech it says um in venice they do not see let heaven see the pranks mm. and that's kind of 
I think um, right at the beginning of the play, um, Othello kind of says to the Duke of uh, Venice, he confesses that he doesn't actually have a great knowledge of Venice because he's been kind of consumed by warfare for the whole of his life. So I think in some ways Iago is using that and kind of saying, you know, I know Venetians well, but kind of you possibly not, which kind of, again, kind of instills the doubt in kind of Othello's mind. Do you think Othello does have a kind of tragic insecurity about his status as a Venetian? Yeah, I think so. I think it would be natural to have, like... And does that stem from race, or is that from his just his backstory? He, you know, he, he's... As think... he explains in that scene you mentioned, he talks about his um, picaresque um, backstory. I think possibly a combination of it. Because um, I, think, I think definitely it would come from the fact that he's been so, like consumed by warfare again, that he hasn't sort of had the time in Venice to kind of know the social codes and that kind of thing. So he's picking up on Othello's doubts and insecurities about his own status, even though he's a general, you know, and he's done incredibly well to rise through the ranks in what's clearly a systemically racist society. Mm, Um, He still somehow has internalised um, those attitudes that exist in the culture around him and um, sort of has, you know, that creates a degree of anxiety or uncertainty. Doesn't he say at one point, you know, happily for I am black and declined into the veil of years, um, when he's thinking that maybe a th- maybe Desdemona doesn't love him as much, he sort of focuses mm. on their racial difference, he focuses on their age difference. Yeah. Um, and he's, it starts to play into all these anxieties. Yeah, Iago knows that, doesn't he? He's basically saying, look, you're a bit of an outsider, aren't you? I'm, I'm a proper Venetian. I understand how yeah. all of these things work. Um, I know our country disposition well. Yeah, you don't know Venetian women like I know them. Really, yeah. Absolutely. And that's really, I suppose, was our final point, wasn't it? This idea of Iago being able somehow, psychologically astute enough to be able to pick up on yeah. characters' weaknesses. Yeah. Great. So those are, those are probably our three points, three main points. Um, and I wondered maybe, Maddie, would you just be happy to sort of read our conclusion that we came up with, um, just as a way of, of concluding our discussion? Um, yes. So in this extract, Shakespeare shows the decisive turn of fortune's wheel that will lead Othello from bliss to the bliss of his recent marriage and defeat of the Turkish fleet towards conspiracy, murder, dishonour and death. His prior use of soliloquy to build a relationship between Iago and the audience means that even while we are sharply conscious of the dramatic irony in this scene, we appreciate Othello's vulnerability. Our perspective has also been corrupted to this uh, to the extent that we appreciate Iago's psychological insight and linguistic skills. As W.H. Auden observed, we sympathise with Othello, but our aesthetic respect is reserved for, for Iago. Yeah. What do you think about that? We, we pity Othello, but our aesthetic respect is reserved for Iago. The play corrupts us somehow. Because yeah. we get so much of Iago, we start looking at the other characters and we start thinking, do you know what, yeah, Iago's right. Othello is a bit bombastic. Cassio is a bit smooth yeah. and charming. I do think you can't, you can't watch or read the play without being yeah, respectful of Iago's sort of talent in manipulating and sort of plotting, I guess. Um, so I definitely think it's kind of, you don't like Iago, but at the same time you're kind of, yeah, yeah. respectful of him. Absolutely. Thanks very much, Maddie.
That's BGS Podcasts on Othello number, I don't know what, um, six or seven maybe. Um, Go and listen to all the others, they're all great. Um, And uh, good luck with your exams.